0: You're listening to Radio Boston. I'm Tiziana Deering, and author David Gran is here with us in Studio 2. Now, you might know him as author of the nonfiction blockbuster Killers of the Flower Moon, which is now an Oscar-nominated film. Maybe it's Lost City of Z or his latest on the New York Times bestseller list, The Wager. He's not a local guy, but he's here for a lecture at Boston University, and given the moment that Killers is having both in popularity and in pushback among some in Oklahoma— where the story took place, we could not resist. So, David, welcome.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. So, bear with me. I'm going to give just the you know the two-sentence synopsis of Killers of the Flower Moon for listeners. A uh, story of a series of murders of the members of the Osage tribe in Oklahoma in the 1910s, 20s, 30s committed by white people to get at tribal wealth, and how Herbert Hoover used the investigation to really launch his FBI. Is that fair? Yes. Okay. Did you know it was about all of those things when you set out to tell this story? What story did you set out to tell?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the the book had a kind of very unusual origin story. When I was visiting the Osage Nation, I uh, went to the uh, Osage Nation Museum, and they had this great panoramic photograph on the wall that was taken in 1924, and it had showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers. and looked very innocent, but a portion of the photograph was missing. And I asked the museum director what had happened to it. And she said it had contained a figure so frightening they had decided to remove it. And then she pointed to that missing panel, and she said the devil was standing right there. And then she went down into the basement, and she pulled up an image of the missing panel, and it showed one of the killers of the Osage during this period, um, and when I began the book, I kind of was focused on that one figure, thinking that this was a story about a singular evil figure who had committed these crimes. But over time, I began to realize that these crimes were far more widespread, and this was really about a culture of killing. Um, so I knew some of the elements, but over time, over a five-year research project, what the book was about would change and grow And to be honest, become far more unsettling and more disturbing than when I had begun.
0: So I appreciate that sort of, especially the unsettling and disturbing, because it does get more and more. Just the sheer scope of the number of people who were murdered in the Osage tribe uh, is stunning. You know, 24 that we know of. Um, But I'm going to say this right now. You may be trying to avoid spoilers. I am not going to. <laughs> you could spoil. Spoil <laughs> okay. away. <laughs> okay. Especially because this is a piece of our history. Yeah. And that's where I want to go next. So I'm looking for a, a particular spe- piece of sound that I want to play here. This happens to be from the film. We're not going to do much on the film. I want to talk about the book. But this sound is useful. So this is, there was a bombing of a house at one point in real life that that kills two of the people we come to know Uh, from the osage community and in the movie two people uh, adjacent to that hear the explosion and here's a little bit of the conversation this is uh, ernest burkhart and molly oh look what was that what was that i don't know Leonardo DiCaprio there with Lily Gladstone, who plays Molly, who is sort of the heartbeat in a lot of ways of this story. The Tulsa piece was referenced to the Tulsa race, race massacre, uh, also Oklahoma.
1: Same time period, only 30 miles away uh, took place. And even though it was a different community, um, it reflected racial attitudes at the time, the dehumanizing of another people that led to these large-scale Um, systematic killings of two distinct populations, one Osage, one African-Americans in Tulsa, same time period, but the same forces at work in many ways.
0: And this is a piece of what I was curious about. So um, when, when I think about the Tulsa race massacre, there will be people who for 100 years always knew about it and people uh, who never knew about it because of the way our American history tr- treated it. A, I'm assuming that is the same for this this reign of terror uh, 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 among the Osage with all the murders of the Osage, or did nobody ever know about it because we sat on that history?
1: Yeah, this was a history that was largely erased uh, from the collective conscious. You know, I described that part about the photograph, and I remember uh, in the museum and the Museum director Catherine Redcorn went down into the basement. She brought up this image of that missing panel. Um, And I kept just thinking about it because those age had removed the photograph because they could not forget their history. Uh, It still reverberated with them. It still haunted them. And yet, when I was working on this book, most Americans, most people, even in Oklahoma, you know, once you left the community, once you left the nation— weren't taught this history. And I include myself. Uh, We were ignorant of it. We had excised it from our consciousness and our conscience.
0: Um, I want to bring another piece of that history here. So this is a conversation. This is Jim Roan Gray, former chief of the Osage Nation, great-grandson of Henry Roan, who's one of the people murdered. He's talking here in October 2023 about his great-grandfather who went to one of the boarding schools uh, that are now infamous um, and how this assimilation into traditional white society affected him.
1: They tried to remove the Osage that was a part of him and turn him into something else, often against his will. You know, he married and had a family, but I, I felt like he, he struggled with his identity and not really fitting into the traditional Indian world that they came from, but certainly not fitting into the white world because to them, they were just another Indian.
0: We'll get to the FBI piece in a minute, but on this piece still, what happened to members of the Osage tribal community I wanted to connect that with Tulsa because it is this expanding story that new parts of America, right, are coming to understand that other parts of America have always told and understood about um, erasure and, and pushback when uh, non-white peoples gain power and presence and place and confidence and industry. The Osage had money. Because they had uh, created this brilliant uh, negotiation of land rights underground that regardless of what was happening back and forth, and there was a lot, as we know, between the U.S. and tribes about surface land, they owned what was underneath and there was oil underneath. And
1: there was oil. Well, the, at that time, some of the largest deposits ever discovered in the United States. And so they were considered, they were certainly among the wealthiest people per capita in the world at the time In the year. I think it was 1923. they were about... 2,000 or so on the Osage Tribal Roll, they received collectively what would be worth today more than $400 million. And that belied these longstanding stereotypes of Native Americans. You'd have reporters heading out to Osage County to regale the readers with these very sensationalist, racist stories about the Osage. And what was so crazy was that members of Congress would hold these hearings for hours at a time debating what are we going to do about the Osage with all their money and they went so far as to pass legislation requiring many Osage to have white guardians to manage their fortune, Fiscal
0: guardians. I mean, literally saying somebody else needs to be responsible for your money because you can't be.
1: Yes, exactly. And it was not a system that was abstractly racist. It was literally racist. It was based on the quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a half-blooded or full-blooded Osage, you were deemed, quote-unquote, incompetent, and you were given one of these guardians who would suddenly—you could be the chief of a nation, and you were suddenly being told whether you could get this car or whether you get that toothpaste at the corner the store. And not only was it racist, it also ushered in one of the largest state and federally sanctioned criminal enterprises as many of the guardians began to steal millions and millions of dollars from the Osage.
0: And to put that in perspective, New York Times reporter—and uh, I think you have this in the book— in 1924, a family of four who were all on the allotment roll earned $52,800— uh, in those years' dollars, which today would be equivalent to about $881,069 exactly. today. All right. So let's go to the other side of this. And I, I said Herbert Hoover, which I do yes, sometimes. Edgar, yes, that's yes. I, did. I was going to correct
1: you, but I let it go. Yes.
0: <laughs> that's
1: really kind of you. J. Edgar Hoover. That's right. That's
0: right. There were a few Hoovers the There were history, a few Hoovers at the same time. yes. And we're not even doing the vacuum ones. So. <laughs> so we look now at the other side of this story and the book. And for, for listeners who are curious, this is one of the differences between the film and the book. This is a two – I think of it as two wings of this book, right? There's two pieces to this story in the book and the other is the emergence of the FBI. It's not like it didn't really exist before. J.F. Hoover wasn't a person before. But there really is – Sort of a, a, a parallel story here, which I found fascinating. Now we're going to give a little sound from the film, and this is a this is a spoiler alert, right? Um, and I, I'm I'm not finding my cut number here for the folks in this in the uh, in the in the control room, but it's I think it's nine. And this is um, an FBI, the guy in charge of the investigation, speaking to a suspect, and I'll clarify more afterward. Ernest, you're a good man, aren't you? Mm, yes, sir, I am. I suppose so. You suppose so? Are, are you, aren't you? I am, sure. I am. Seems to me your family back home, they're more of a blessing to you than your uncle, King Bill Hale. And you and I both know he presents himself as a very righteous man, and that's just not who he is. He's done nothing for you, son, except... Make you do bad things and take advantage of you because of your disposition. Jesse Plemons playing Tom White there, the lead investigator. Leonardo DiCaprio, who originally was going to play Tom White, and then when they took the FBI piece out, went to Ernest Burkhart, who's a core figure in this. They're referring to Hale, who I'm assuming is the devil in the picture? He was the devil,
1: yes. William K. Hale, who was Molly's husband, who's kind of the heart and soul played by Lily Gladstone. Married Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Ernest's uncle was William K. Hale, who was kind of the most powerful figure in the in that area. He was known as the King of the Osage Hills. Of course, he crusaded. He was a deputy sheriff as well, and he crusaded for what he called God-fearing souls. And yet he was the devil who had orchestrated many of these killings.
0: And, and so Tom White, he becomes the anchor for the other piece of this story. Yes. Uh, which is how the FBI investigated it, how J. Edgar Hoover used this investigation to raise the profile of the FBI. um, And and give us just a sentence or two about why that piece was so fascinating to you.
1: Yeah. I mean, at that time, the Bureau was a really ragtag organization. It suffered from many of the same problems that plagued law enforcement at the time, corruption, poor training. And it had very limited jurisdiction over crimes. But one of their jurisdictions was over uh, American Indian uh, reservations, which is why this case fell to him and why it became one of their first major homicide cases. Tom White eventually takes charge of investigation that had been disastrous. He's able to capture a couple of the killers. Hoover then uses that to kind of burnish uh, the FBI's reputation, yet he very prematurely closes the case. And the book really has three pieces. Yeah. And there's a third piece, that which third maybe piece. we'll talk about. Which well, really... I'm actually
0: trying to avoid the spoiler in the first oh, okay. for you. So. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> I'm giving a little kindness here, <laughs> but there is a third piece, which is which is the the, the 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 when you said you got more and more disturbed. Yes, the third piece is all about the more and more yes. disturbed. that yeah.
1: just essentially there was a much deeper and darker conspiracy that the bureau never exposed, but um, the case was a very formative, important part of early law enforcement history and early FBI history.
0: All right, so as we as we sort of look ahead now, I'm I'm going to borrow from another Radio Boston segment. We were doing Ken Burns' 2023 documentary, The American Buffalo. Um, This is Jermaine White, who is of the Salish Kotini tribe on the legacy of indigenous life in the United States. We have lived here for 600 generations. We have been here conservatively 12,000 years. So if you think about that 12,000 years, imagine that on a timeline, and then take that 12,000 years and wrap that timeline around a 24-hour clock. What that means is that Columbus arrived at about 11.28 p.m., and Lewis and Clark at about 15 minutes before midnight. So in Oklahoma, there's a new law that uh, basically says you can't teach in school anything that might make somebody uncomfortable about their race, and it has led to schools not teaching your book. In our last minute, and of course we could do an entire conversation just on that, with that ringing in the back of our ears... Talk about your reaction to that.
1: Yeah, I find it mind boggling and horrifying. And it has led to what I and actually Jim Gray, who you quoted earlier, I talked to Jim a lot, um, refers to it as soft censorship. The teachers who are afraid of causing discomfort, because that's what the law says, are afraid to teach these books, are afraid to. And one teacher w- was unable to teach Killers of the Flower Moon. And this is part of our history, and it is essential we learn from it. It is the way we not only learn about the past, but the kind of people and nation we want to be in the future. So it is absolutely bewildering and mind-boggling to me um, that we are constraining teachers from being able to teach this part of our history.
0: If you want to read a book this weekend that will put you in the center of that history and blow your mind a little bit, you can turn to Killers of the Flower Mood. David Gran is the author. Thanks for being here in Studio 2 with us on Radio Boston.
1: Thanks so much for sharing this history with people.